Hello, my name is Jaren. I'm Jacob. And I'm Miku. On this show, we are going to highlight how to navigate media school and the media industry by talking to students, profs, alumni, and professionals. It's all about the mentality. This is the Media Mentality Podcast. On this week's episode of Media Mentality Podcast, we have a special guest that has quite literally experienced the industry on a global scale. He is a professional cinematographer, editor, and a photographer, and is also a PADI certified underwater photographer and videographer. He has spent the last seven summers teaching photography around the world in places such as France, Spain, Portugal, Germany, and Hawaii. Please give a warm welcome to the RTA icon, Gary Gold. Hey, look at that. I've never called an icon before. Yeah, like you're that. an icon to us Absolutely. all. We, we love you. 100% deserving. <laughs> Thank you for those kind words, though. Happy to be here. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much. So, Gary, you yourself are a graduate of the RTA program. So what was it like when you were a student? Uh, that's a great question. I, uh, I, uh, It's interesting. I almost didn't come to RTA. I was in the high school band. And I played percussion. So uh, when everyone else was running through scales and notes, uh, the percussionist, we just sort of sit at the back and just talk. <laughs> and uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Don, he was a drummer. And he told me he was going to apply to Ryerson for their RTA program. And I'd never heard of it. And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. So then I looked into it and applied. And uh, as, uh, as you all know, that it's very hard to get into. And so I thought, well, I'll try and uh, see if I can get in. And I did. And uh, it changed my life. It was uh, it was a, a decision that has uh, lent. Uh, well, you just read the introduction and that those are a result of uh, skills that I learned in RTA and then built on and developed on later in my career. So did you have any like aspirations to do like media before that moment? When I was a kid, so my father was, uh, he did some, I guess he was a professional photographer, but he would do industrial stuff for his own business. And he had like all the cameras and all the lights and uh, he had a Super 8 camera. And so I started using this little camera. It was a cartridge of film, Super 8 film, and you'd get four minutes of record time. And because it was uh, like a film camera, you didn't know what you were getting. It maybe it was too dark or not, right? You did, you're just guessing at the exposure as a kid. And I just fell in love with the visual medium. It was really expensive too, because four minutes was about $16. Oh, damn. And that's probably the equivalent of, I don't know, 30 or 40 bucks nowadays. And Star Wars had come out and I was really interested in science fiction. So I was making... Uh, science fiction movies uh, with this little camera and then splicing it all together and then showing it for like the people on the street and we had like a like a film showing and I just really loved visual medium I just it's I realized it's a great way to communicate I love sound as well and I think sound is the foundation of television and film I've often heard that sound is the forgotten child of television and film because a bad audio track will ruin your whole film right but yeah, no, I, that's sort of where I fell in love with things. And I used to watch a lot of TV as a kid and it engaged my mind. I found it very, very interesting. And then uh, also Disney World opened, I think, in 71. Well, I know it did open October 71. And my family, we took a trip to Disney World in the 70s. And uh, it was also fantastic because it's very visual. And it's like you're you're going into the movies. And as someone who's very creative and I have a very strong imagination and that also kind of, you know, inspired me, I would say. And then uh, also when I was growing up, too, there was the Walt Disney um, show on Sunday nights, Wonderful World of Disney. And they 
you know, all these interesting stories and shows and people doing things. And yeah, that's what, that's what engaged me. So when I had a chance, I thought, well, if I can be part of that world, how great would that be? Right. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned how you've kind of fell in love with video and that aspect and also audio as well. Um, in RTA, did you have a specific specialization in mind where you went in and you were like, I'm going to do video or television, things like that? I'm a big believer in trying most things once, although I don't necessarily think I'll ever bungee jump or jump out of an airplane and I'm not a drug user, so I wouldn't use that. I don't believe in trying everything in life, but uh, certainly when I went into RTA, I thought I'm going to try everything that RTA offers, right? And the first year when I was in the program was all audio and radio. And in fact, I was actually kind of surprised. I thought, hey, where's all the television? And it's interesting because the audio I learned in my first year of RTA was foundational for the rest of my career. And then um, I decided I would try audio. So I went to the Philippines in 1986 and I did a two-month radio internship in Manila. Um, so I was, uh, I was an operator, but mostly I was on air. I was doing a morning show and I was editing, uh, audio and, and, and building shows and picking music and, um, and transmitting, you know, these shows to, uh, it was shortwave radio, uh, but the, the, out of the Philippines, they had some English language programs and I worked with, uh, Ann Norris was the head of the department and she was a former BBC, uh, producer. So she was very helpful. So I tried it. I said, you know what, try my best. And I enjoyed it. But when I went back to Ryerson and, um, to do film and television, that's really what I found that my real love was. So I love both. Certainly, I think we all listen to, whether it's music or podcasts or radio, I, I do enjoy audio, but um, I like the added level of television, of visuals to show things. Yeah. So um, of course, in RTA, when you were there for undergrad, uh, you probably took a bunch of courses. So thinking back to that time, and then also your time as an educator in RTA, um, what has been your favorite course to take versus what has been your favorite course to teach in RTA? Probably my absolute favorite course was the multi-camera course, the studio class, because it was so much fun. You got to be, you got to act on camera. I remember I was in a soap opera, like different people's personal productions. I love directing. Like I really love the round robin that you would do. You try different things. And I took an acting and directing class, which I also really enjoyed. Like I like being in front of the camera. I really miss that. And so those two are probably my most like favorite. But then when I got into the real world, I actually, uh, I, I tried working in a studio as a camera operator in a multi-camera studio. And honestly, because you're not rotating, you're just doing one job. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as much fun. I'm just the camera person. And I'm like, well, I want to direct. I don't want to do other things. And where I found my, uh, I guess my stride was with single camera is I started doing single camera because I can shoot, I can direct, I can produce, I can edit. You're doing everything. And I love doing that. And, and I got to travel. Whereas with a multi-camera production, unless you're doing the Olympics, because multi-camera, certainly there was travel with that. But uh, for me at the time, I had opportunities to just do videos in different places. And uh, in 1989, I went to West Africa, to Liberia, and shot some stuff there. Maybe that was where it started. But then I was in uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan. Like I just got these opportunities to, to sh- up in Alaska, shooting videos, South, South America, Central America. And um, combined with, I love people and meeting people 
has been a one of the best parts of the job for me because you get to tell people stories, you get to get to know people. And then the other part of your question was, what's my favorite course to teach? I would say any course with with students. That's just the way it is. <laughs> I, I just the, the my favorite part of a course is the students, and I love trying to engage people. Um, you don't always win. There, are, you don't engage everybody. I've learned that, and it's hard. And not everybody responds to my teaching methods. So you try to adjust them. I'm always taking courses, always trying to get better at what I do. I mean, I'm a lifelong learner and maybe we'll talk about that later, but, um, so any course where there's students and I've worked, uh, I've had the privilege of teaching Ryerson students from the RTA school of media, the RTA sport production journalism. I've taught thousands of journalism students, uh, all excellent students, uh, uh, creative industries, uh, some, some of the, some of those students, graduate students, undergrads, and um, it's, a, it's a privilege. It's a privilege, right? Teaching to me is a privilege. So I know you said that, you know, teaching has just been a dream come true of yours. Like what has been your favorite part about teaching? I think what it is, I remember there was one student, um, and maybe I won't name him just because it's a public thing. There's, it's not a bad story. It's a good story. I was teaching a photojournalism course, and um, he'd never used a DSLR before or a, any kind of a camera with an interchangeable lens. So I taught him how to use the camera. And he's a very gifted visual communicator. Uh, he was doing some work for the TFC, the, the football team, the BMO field there. And he was, it was writing stuff for, I think, a sports blog. And then he kind of really tweaked into the idea of a, of a better camera with a zoom lens. And I taught him some techniques. And he was just a great photographer. He just had a natural ability. I taught him the technical part, but he had the, he had the creative side. And his pictures were fantastic. His pictures are so good. Uh, the, the the players were actually bootlegging his pictures, for lack of a better term, and like posting them on their own social media and putting them on their Facebooks because they were beautiful pictures. And he wound up, uh, uh, the TFC went on to uh, win the championship and he was part of the media core and he's actually working. At last I heard, he's still working for uh, Toronto, uh, what's it called, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. I like that story because I was able to give him a skill he did not have, combine it with a skill he did have, and he went on to great success. And it was that, I think education is a blending. It isn't like I teach you how to do something. It's you bring something to the table as well. And the other thing as an educator that, that, that I found out is um, I love learning. Uh, I love learning. And I learn as much from students as they learn from me because things have changed over the years. Technologies have changed. But I love the fact that you might say to me, you know what, um, can we try it this way? Or you'll do something new with a piece of equipment. I say, that, that looks fantastic. How did you do that? So I think because we all have our own individual mind with our own ideas, um, being able to work together collaboratively, I enjoy. I should also say too, can you hear that bird? I'm outside in the backyard enjoying the summer here. So <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is not some kind of a, that is not on the track. We did not add that later. Um, and my apologies, it's enjoying the tree behind me. And if it's a problem, I could move inside. No, it's, no it, it should be okay. Yeah. It has good rhythm. It's, it, it knows you, you did percussion. <laughs> Can I tell you, I was terrible at percussion. I'm going to confess this. I played drums, but I wasn't very good at it. But I will say this. Uh, I learned how to be a better drummer. I learned beat. And what's funny is years later when I was an editor, I realized that's why I was a drummer. Because I learned how to keep rhythm and time, you know. And 
and that helped me as an editor. And that's the thing too. There's lots of life experiences we all have and you think, I don't know why I worked at Starbucks for five years or whatever, you know, as a barista. And then you realize later on that when you're dealing with customers and clients of your own, you know, it's not dissimilar. People, people are people, you know, whether they're asking for something in their coffee or something in a production, the way you treat people, I think is, is important to the way they respond. For sure. And so um, as we've seen over the course of this past year, you know, teaching really changed, you know, and uh, teaching and c- converting curriculum to the online co- context is no easy undertaking. But you were an excellent example of how to take that challenge on and just make the most of it. You know, you really went above and beyond in tr- creating a truly what I believe is an engaging Zoom classroom experience, which is not an easy thing to do. And, you know, you created your own studio, you built yourself to help further teach all your students and really make the Zoom classroom the best it can be. So could you please tell us about that process and what your experience teaching online this past year has been like? Absolutely happy to help the, uh, to talk about that. I realized when I finished my PhD that I'd been a student for 36 years of my life. So most of my life was been a student. So I've taught, but I've also been on the other side of it. And when I was doing my PhD out of Virginia, I took some courses that were uh, actually many courses that were online before online was even really a thing. So I was on the other side of the online learning and I knew what I liked and what I didn't like. So when I came into uh, the situation where we're now teaching online, I'm like, I have some experience. Actually, I have a lot of experience with this because of my own personal experience. And as a visual communicator, I thought, well, first of all, I need a place to demonstrate some of the stuff, whether it's tripods or whatever. And then over the years, because I am a freelance, uh, you know, cinematographer, et cetera, I have my own equipment, I have professional tripods, et cetera, and lighting equipment, I own my own stuff. And I thought, well, I could certainly demonstrate stuff. And I can also demonstrate stuff uh, with just a desk lamp and a white piece of board or a white wall. Like you don't need a $5,000 light to do that. So then my mother, who uh, was very kind, um, let me have a piece of spot in the basement. And so I started building these walls with planking. And I was always a fan. In a few weeks, the Jungle Cruise movie's coming out. And I was always a fan of that ride as a kid. I just liked the idea of exploration in the jungle and going to see something new and getting on a boat. And so I thought, I'm going to try to theme it like that. This idea of like, we're starting at this base camp and we're going to together explore these different topics and so it took a lot of time Uh, I didn't want to use a green screen although uh, I could have and I set up for green screen but I thought no I want this to be a real uh, environment so I can demonstrate stuff because green screen will cut stuff out when you're holding it up and so I just started with that and then I thought you know it'd be great to have a train I'd like it because it's a fun thing and so then I got this, it was hard to do because it had to be dead level and it's about, you know, six, seven feet above my, or from the floor. And I found it was really expensive. I think in the end, the train cost me, well, at least 500 bucks uh, because oh I wanted God. not just, I wanted two trains because one train didn't come around the camera far enough. And so then I wanted two trains. So there was more visual activity. And then I went and bought a bunch of webcams. I think I have about 12 webcams right now. Because the, and I'm still working on the setup. I was working on it last week. Uh, I want to have different angles and different views. And my thing too is I just wanted it to be a place that said when, when people came into the classroom virtually, they would know I'm not in my backyard, right? Like I, I took enough 
time to say, I'm going to prep the space that I teach in. And, um, and also let me be clear on this. I'm not, I, I am just me and I know what works for me. My reason for doing it was just because I wanted to do it. And I, this is where I am. I don't mean to disparage anybody who used a green screen. I had lots of colleagues who just were in their basement and they taught from their basement and that's fine. The difference is a lot of them were not TV teachers, right? I teach, teach television. I work in a visual medium. I teach lighting. And so I thought, you know what, if I'm teaching lighting and television, shouldn't it look good, right? Like if I'm teaching a, an English class, you don't expect, not that there's anything wrong with English, I love English, but I mean, you don't expect someone to be familiar with good lighting techniques. And so, yeah, like I, I went and got this $5,000 uh, Kino light that I've mounted in the ceiling. And I'll tell you too, I've paid a price for this. One time I was online for six hours with that light on my eyes. And then at the end of the time, I got what's called like a, it's some kind of a, a migraine, like a visual migraine. Like you get this, you see these lines in your eyes because you've been staring at a bright light for six hours. So I've had to kind of revisit that. But generally, I think for me, the, the, the whole point of teaching online is that it's been a real experience learning and adjusting. And then I got feedback from students. I would do things, I would do some things differently. It's a work in progress because you're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. No, that makes complete sense. I will say this too. Um, online also gave me the opportunity to do things that I couldn't do in a classroom. Like I could demonstrate camera technique easier. What does a slider look like? I have a $5,000 slider in my setup. Uh, I've got a, um, a duty dolly, which is like a $2,000 dolly. So I can show how a dolly works and, and, and people can actually see it on their cameras. And the other great thing too, is because everyone's on camera, I could say, okay, well, uh, you're backlit or to turn towards the, like I can actually work with people like Jacob right now, you're side lit, right? Yes. And so I can sort of demonstrate that. So there was some advantages to me as a television instructor. Here's, here's the struggle. The struggle is how long do you keep people on camera? Right. And, and the, the problem is like, if I'm, if, if it's a six hour class, I want to give people a six hour value. I don't want them to feel like it was a half an hour worth of class and then that was it. And so, yeah, that's the hard part. And, and I kind of, I would say I probably learned as I went along, I realized giving people, like I would do breaks at the top of every hour so that people knew when the breaks were. So I put in more breaks and some people just don't like online straight up. So there's nothing I can do. A train set is just a fun thing that I would run on the break. But I also think there's, there's a, there's a certain frustration for all of us that, you know, especially if you're paying good money to learn how to work a camera and you don't have access to that camera, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating, mm -hmm. right? So going away from the online education aspect of things, you know, I had the pleasure of having you in my first year. Like I had you for single cam, but other than single cam, you taught a lot of good life lessons and just lessons about the industry, such as, you know, how to present myself, how to negotiate and find out the real budget of a company. Do you find it really important to teach these lessons early on? As I know, like some other profs don't really talk about the side of things unless they're directly asked. Uh, well, first of all, again, thank you for that. And it means a lot to me that the course was something that uh, was more than just the technical things. I guess what I've learned through through years of doing is knowing how to work a camera or how to light is only a small part of the business. How to deal with people, how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with rejection, right? Everybody gets rejected. Or if there is anybody that's never been rejected, I'd like to meet them. But, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then I'll reject them. Yeah, no. 
No, but but we all do, whether it's a relationship or a job you didn't get, or you get a job and then they they, they fire you, uh, or the, you get laid off because there's no work. Uh, so I think it's important to understand. To me, part of educating somebody to work as a cinematographer or as a lighting person is to understand what it is to work with people and to realize that it isn't just all roses out there. Like, you know what? You could be laid off, and this is why you need to learn lighting and audio. So uh, those of you that are just doing audio, I'd say learn everything. Learn lighting. Do a multi-camera class. Do, do a single camera class. The more skills you have, the better. And one of our guest speakers who uh, I believe it was Doug that said this, he said, this is from the 711 class, make yourself invaluable to the company. I thought that was great advice. Constantly learn and keep learning. Don't ever sit and stop learning and just say, okay, well, I'm safe, right? And in fact, he even said in the class, he actually had been working in a company for 16 years, lost his job because he sort of sat back and said, I'll just take a break. I'm untouchable. Apparently not, right? So there's things like that. So in terms of life lessons, uh, I think it's, it's a balance because I don't want to sound... I guess I just want people to understand the bigger picture, right? And then too, with budgeting, like I'm also trying to teach because I've done a lot of freelance work, how much do you charge, right? Like, so there's a, there's a very good chance that, you know, the three of you and people listening, you know, someone will come along and say, hey, I've, I see you do audio. Can you do a podcast for us? And you're like, yeah. And they say, well, how much do you charge? And you're like, uh, I don't know. My advice is just say, I'll get back to you and then call somebody. And you're certainly welcome to call me and say, look, what should I charge? Uh, normally people bid too low. A funny story, years ago, I was talking to someone who was buying art from this, like uh, photographs. I guess the image arts department, there's gallery exhibits. And I guess they sell some of their work. They're prints. They're, you can buy a print. And so I'd, I was asking the person about who was buying them. I said, how does the pricing work? And she said, either they go way too low or they ask way too much. Like there's, <laughs> they don't get the middle ground, right? And that's the problem. I think part of experience is coming to realize what your value is. Because I think a lot of people think, well, minimum wage is $14, I'll charge 15. I'm like, no, you've just spent thousands of dollars to go to school to learn. Plus the other thing people don't remember is even those tuition, say tuition's 8,000, I think it's about that roughly. There's living expenses. But let's say you say, well, I live at home and so my parents are kind enough to pay. Well, that's fine. But your lost income, how much could you make? If you took a job that paid $14 an hour for the year, that's maybe $30,000 that you're not making. So you're losing 30 plus the eight. So it's thousands of dollars. But I will also tell you this, it's money very well spent. It's money very well spent. If you, if you ever played the game of life, do you remember the one with the spinning thing in the middle? I don't know if you yeah. guys are too young for that, but yeah. mm -hmm. when you play oh, yeah. at the beginning, you could go to college, you know, you could take the, the detour. And if you do the college route, you always got a better paying job than if you just went into life. And I do strongly believe, like my, my PhD was about $100,000 is what it cost, right? Did I need to do it? No. Did I need to pay, you know, uh, $500 for a train set? No. <laughs> Did I need a $5,000 light? No. But- but my thing is, why go halfway when you can go 100%? If I'm going to teach, then I want the best teaching degree that I can get, right? If I'm going to do an online class, even though basically I'm spending my entire paycheck on things for the set, right? And I'm still improving it. I'm buying more cameras and different things and more lights, right? But I want you to know that I value you as an individual enough to spend the money to do it properly, right? And does Ryerson give me money for that? There was a small, small amount. I could have made more money by not doing that. And you wouldn't have known, all right? I'll just sit in a basement or, or whatever. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm trying to say is I value people and I want people to know I care about you as an individual, not just as a number on the sheet that you're just a student. It's This is why I say it's a privilege to teach. What's my favorite course? There's a course when you're, you're in it. That's my favorite course when there's somebody in it, you know, whether it's eight people or 18 people or 800 people. Well, that makes complete sense. And this, this is something that you mentioned about, you know, make being invaluable to the company. And I guess what is like one trait uh, would you say is important to have to be successful in the industry to become invaluable? I think just never stop learning, right? Uh, one of the things that I've really found with technology is it's always changing. Um, sometimes I think when you're older and you're teaching technologies, think, well, maybe it's the young blood that we want, right? Oh, somebody who's a new, uh, an up-and-comer. And there's certainly value in that. And this is why I say I really love learning from anybody, whether they're, I mean, I taught, I teach uh, high school photography. I've seen some great work, you know, whether you're 16 or 26, like I think everybody's, I can learn from other people. Now, what I have seen is, is in order to stay current, I think you need to be um, adaptable, never stop learning. So you're going to learn all the latest stuff and then you graduate. Well, then it's up to you. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to continue using, you know, Premiere Pro, what you learned on, or are you going to learn all the updates and keep staying current and moving on? And uh, the one thing I love about audio is um, like if you buy a pair of those Audio Technica, head, Technica headphones, I guess the M40s is what you guys are buying. That's good forever. Like that headphone will be good until it breaks, right? Um, whereas a video camera, if you buy a video camera, we're into 4K now, but 8K is coming. We've already got 6K out and 8K is here. And so how long are things going to be good for? I guess my thing is to, to answer the question is always keep learning and also to don't give up. Right. Like if you get uh, rejected, it, it's OK. I remember one time uh, I was, I was um, having dinner with a, a couple of friends uh, who were uh, the, the one person had just been laid off. And I said to that person, I said, you know what? I know it sucks. And something had happened at work. It wasn't really this person's fault. There was a complaint from a, you know somebody, an audience member or something. And they because this person was kind of low in the poll. They just said, we'll just get rid of that person. It was easier for them, right? That's how they dealt with it. No loyalty to this person. So then I said, just, you know, stay with it. I said, you got lots of great personality traits. Like you got your, you got a great personality for like in, in front of camera stuff and you have the skills, just, just find a better, just find somebody who wants to want you on their team. Long story short, that person went on to write uh, at least one book, maybe two, now lives in New York and is oh. doing the dream oh. job, right? And funnily enough, the company that fired them wound up going out of business, right? Oh, yeah. really? Oh, wow. And if, if, if that person hadn't been fired, they would have been stayed at that other company. That other company would have taken them down. And then all of a sudden, you get all these different people with these skills that are scrambling for work. So being fired doesn't mean you're a bad person. Not getting the job doesn't mean you're a bad person. You know, getting dumped doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It's just not a good match. There's better things out there. The best is yet to come is what I believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. That reminds me of like how I know like quite a few uh, people who um, didn't get into RT on the first try, but like a lot of these people are some of the most like talented and hardworking people I've ever met. You know, sometimes just doesn't for whatever reason, right? I think I, you know, um, like if if I wanted to get in, and I've given this advice to people, if you if you try and you to get into RT and you don't get in, I mean, look at other options. But me personally, I would take a year and work, earn some money, 
you know, save up some kind of build a war chest of money. There's a good chance if you do something with that year, you know, and improve your skills and figure out maybe take a writing class or something. I would say too, people take a course at Ryerson. So then when you reapply, they can see a Ryerson mark. So they say, oh, look at you did, you got a 95 in this, uh, this Chang school course you took, right? And that certainly would help. But yeah, you just uh, try and try again. Isn't that what they say? At first you don't succeed, try again. Yeah, because um, I actually got rejected first time I applied, and then I applied a second time, and I got in. What did you do for the year? Well, my parents forced me to go to another school for the year, but um, the, oh, one of my that. main mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> one of my main mistakes, like the first time that I realized was like at my interview, I was like so nervous, like I barely talked, I stuttered. So that year, I basically worked on just my interview skills and communication skills. So the next time I got to do the uh, interview again, that it'd be better and. The interview was great. Like I, I, I still don't remember who the person was that interviewed me, but we had a great time. We like we talked for a while, and it was really good. So I think that made a huge difference. Oh, aren't you glad you did though, Jaron? Didn't aren't you glad you tried again? Yeah, no, hundred <laughs> percent. Wouldn't be here if you didn't try again. <laughs> Wouldn't be here. It would just be the Jacob and Miku podcast. It was scary. <laughs> So because you've traveled so to so many different places and you've kind of jumped on so many opportunities, do you have any advice in terms of how to get past the overthinking stage of it and just do it and just go with it and things like that? Uh, a great question, Miku. Uh, so I tell the story years ago, I was up, uh, it was a youth group retreat from the church I was going to at the time. And uh, we went to some camp and they're like, hey, there's cliff jumping. You want to try it? So I'm like, yeah, okay. So you had to row over on a boat. I remember rowing over with my friend Merritt. And uh, there was a group of us, but I just remember it was Merritt was with me, and we were looking at the cliff from the from the boat, and it didn't look too high. I thought, oh, that's okay. So the, we all scrambled up the side of this cliff, and we're we're now at the top of the cliff. Well, when you're actually ready to jump, it's a very different perspective, right? You mentioned Cairo earlier, but I might say, oh yeah, Cairo sounds great. That's like I'm in the boat looking at it from a distance. Okay, now Cairo's next week, and I'm about to get on an airplane. Now I'm at the top of the cliff, and you're looking over, and you go, boy, this is pretty daunting. It looks much higher from the top than the bottom for some reason. And the reason I mentioned my friend Merritt is I sort of stood at the edge and I'm like, I don't know about this. And my friend Merritt just looked, made sure it was safe, ran and jumped, you know, and she's like, it's fine. But I'm still kind of, I don't know, it looks pretty scary. And there was a certain point where I just had to just go, just run and jump. And um, and it was fine. I'm not one to take unsafe risks, right? There are certain things, like I said, I just don't feel comfortable with. And I think it's okay to say no to those things. I don't think, I don't think bungee jumping will make me a better person or jumping <laughs> on the airplane. You know? uh, I know lots of friends that do, but I'm like, I'm okay without that, right? And so I think the comfortable, it's, it's that Robert Frost poem I, I've often quoted in class that two roads diverged in the middle of a woods. And I took the one less traveled and it made all the difference, right? And a lot of products kind of pick on that, you know, be unique, you know, be different, you know, you're worth it, this kind of idea. Yet a lot of people kind of choose the safe path. Like the three of you doing this podcast, this is not a safe path. This is something different. There's a risk, there's time involved, there's energy, you're doing something that's different. You've taken the jump. Somebody told me this, and I've never been able to verify this. They they say that they 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 surveyed a bunch of older people, like in their seniors' homes. What was your biggest regret? And the, the biggest answer was, I didn't take more risks. Now, I've never been able to find that actually factually proven, but it certainly is a great story. And I think there's certain truth to that. You know, I wish that I had opportunity. Like 
like even somebody asked me like why why Cairo? Because I guess it's like why Mount Everest because it's there. Like it's an opportunity that I would like to explore. And I'm going for four months, but I know colleagues that are going for a year. Imagine packing your year your life up for a year. If you have a car, what do you do with that? What do you do with your insurance, your medical? You know, like what do you do with an apartment? What do you do with all your stuff? And then you have to go to another country and set up and learn the language and the culture and, you know, and, and try to be an effective educator in a different culture. And, well, I think there's a reason that uh, Jacob and Jaron dropped out of U of T because you're like, this is not what I want. And the one thing that I always found with traveling is it makes me feel alive in a new way. It's hard to explain, but I was explaining to someone today, when you travel, you lose your safety net. Like if I'm alone in the city, well, I know Toronto, I know the TTC, I know where to get the trains, that kind of stuff. But if you go to another country and you're alone and you don't know anybody, it's kind of unnerving, right? Because you're like, if something happens, I don't know where the nearest... I don't know anything. And if there's a language issue, right, because I don't speak the local language, then it's an even greater uncertainty, you know. But maybe like Jeff Bezos, sometimes you've got to get on the on the rocket. Is he in space? I don't even know where he is, but I, I know he's going to <laughs> I space. Think he came back already. Did he? I think they literally just went out of the orbit for like 11 minutes and then just came back down. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think they go to the edge of the planet or something and then come in, right? Yeah. I, I also want to specify, because uh, I don't know if we specified on the podcast, Gary in the second semester is going to Cairo to teach at the Ryerson Cairo campus, which is super exciting. And I just wanted to give context to that. Congratulations on that uh, wonderful uh, opportunity. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be part of the team that's going. Uh, we have, actually, I don't know how many we're going. I know I'm doing Arabic lessons on uh, Mondays with a few others, and they're going for a year. And we have a colleague from the fashion program, so uh, at least one. Uh, so they're doing fashion. They're doing RTA at the Universities of Cairo in Egypt, or UCE as we call it. And it's an exciting new campus. I was honored to be involved in the uh, some of the planning with the building and the, the, the layout of the building. And um, the courses, as I understand it, are going to be a mirror of what, uh, what you're doing in Toronto. Uh, so there should be complete um, compatibility. It's a brand new building with new facilities and new equipment. Uh, that's always exciting when you could start from scratch, as it were, or maybe make some changes. Yeah, I, I don't know what to expect in many ways. Um, I've never been to Egypt. Uh, it's a place I've always wanted to go. Maybe you could do an interview six months from now and I can... or. When I'm there and let's do it season two it. season yes. two uh and see what happens but um and I don't I don't know like I think it'd be wouldn't it be fun if if you're an RTA student if you could do a year in in, in Cairo I, I do want to go to another country and just learn in some, one way or another even if it's not exchange the one thing I'll say is if, if the student being a student is like having a gold card uh let's say I phone the BBC and I say hey I want to just come and do some learning and they're like are you a student I'm like no no I'm not probably I'll get turned down. But if you phone and you say, hey, I'm a student Ryerson and I'm interested in, do you have an internship? Uh, there's different types of internships. Some internships, uh, I think this is typical of American uh, internships, like with the broadcaster, it has to be for course credit. So you have to be getting a credit. However, I do know there are some internships, you don't need a course credit. If you're a Ryerson student, you want to do an internship, no problem. So this goes with like along with what you're saying right now. And I know you said being a student has a lot of advantages, but do you think someone who just graduates should probably take some time before they get into the field or should they just, you know, try to go and 
as soon as they can. Um, I would say look at the opportunities that are there. These are very tough times because COVID has sort of changed the industry a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, sets are smaller. They're, they're sort of running skeleton crews uh, because of, at least to this point, because of some of the COVID restrictions uh, on some sets, uh, not all sets. But it's it's about... How did I start at Ryerson? Well, there was an opening. There was a job opening. So when I was looking, when I, you know, at the time I found this job, what I would do is look at what's available. So when you graduate, say, well, what is it you want to do? And by the way, the thing with the doing an internship, it's an excellent place to get a job. One of the things that I've told students for years, the best thing to do is get an internship in your last semester or in the last half of your last semester. So for six weeks, the last half of my final year at Ryerson, I will be interning in Singapore because there's a very good chance that they'll say to you, you know what, why don't you stay on for the summer? I knew one student who did that when you, and you wanted to go to the States, Jaren, you mentioned that. Mm -hmm. Um, She did an internship down in San Francisco, I believe. And she got an internship uh, with a, and got a visa. So it was all legal. The visa was expensive. I want to say 3000 bucks or something to get a student visa. But, but the student visa was good for, I think it was six months. So she did the internship for six weeks and then she went and started working for someone else. So she used that whole six months. She's now living and working in the U S because that internship turned into a job. So you ask her, was that worth $3,000, Allison? She'll say, absolutely. Every penny. You got to spend money to make money. Was my $100,000 worth it? I think so. Was $500 for a train set? On some, I was at the train store yesterday. I was thinking, gee, I spend a lot of money on this thing. Uh, <laughs> but I'm like, I don't know. If it made someone smile who's having a lousy day, and I thought, well, that's pretty different, then yeah, it's worth the money because there's no, you can't put a dollar value on that. But, but the thing is, take a chance because often the reason how how did Jeff Bezos get to space at one point he took a chance whether it was and same with Walt Disney guy started out of his uncle's garage right borrowed $500 from his uncle bought a camera him and his brother started making movies right and funny story his uncle said to him uh, uh, Walt said do you want the $500 back or do you want stock in our company and his uncle said I want my $500 back which Walt gave him and they say that stock like 50% of the company is billions now the uncle's long gone but still there's the idea that an internship is a great way to get a job, especially in a place that's that's a little different. You want to work for National Geo in Washington? Phone them up. Call them up. I'm a student looking for an internship. And you say, but Gary, I'm getting ready to graduate. I might say, look, at if they said to you, you have to be a student, then I'd then drop one of your courses. Don't take it like be one credit short so you don't graduate until next year. Do an English course in the summer. Not that, I mean, English is great or something. Do an English, something <laughs> in the summer, right? So that you don't actually graduate till after your internship. And there's a very good chance that that internship could either turn into a job. I say, like, find out where you want to work, find a city you want to work in. Maybe you want to work in San Francisco, because when Allison started working in San Francisco, what happens? You're working in a media agency. Well, guess what? Your ABC's talking to NBC and you're talking to CBS and you're talking to everybody. You know, so then you say, you know, maybe go have uh, lunch with some of these people from other agencies. And you say, yeah, I'm a Canadian student. I'm trying to find a job. And like, you know, what? we're hiring uh, ABC's hiring for this job. Try this out. You're already there. You can intern. You can interview in person. They like you, right? You're, you've taken a chance. You're outside your comfort zone. It's surprisingly easy to do it. And if a good job comes up, certainly take it. For a final question, what is some advice you could give to someone who's entering RTA right now? What advice would you give to them? Uh, I guess it depends on if they're in or not in. If you're not in and you want to go, then let's say you don't get in this year, I would say take a year's do some courses, do what you did, Jaron, uh, improves your skills. 
well, I guess you went to U of T, but, and you certainly could do that. And I, Jacob, you also went to U of T. So I think going to another school can help because it shows that what your mark would be at the university level. So that's never a bad thing. But if you're new into RTA, I would say, enjoy the journey. Somebody told me that when I started my PhD, enjoy the journey, right? The courses you don't really like. Yeah. You know what? Just sort of, maybe there's something in there for you, right? Uh, come to class and, and see what happens. And you're, you, you, the other great thing is you're among great people. So get to know the people you're going to school with, become friends with them, go for coffee. Don't be afraid to say to someone, Hey, uh, want to have lunch together. And it's just, it's, it's, I find groups are better. Like if I went up to you, Jaron, if it's just the two of us, you want to have lunch, like, I don't know, but let's say there's three or four of us now. Hey, a group of us are going for lunch. Let's, you know, let's start to hang out together. Let's meet each other. And I've seen this, I wouldn't say hundreds of times, but because I teach summer courses with students that nobody knows any. So every summer, everybody shows up in location and nobody knows anybody. So it's all brand new people. This has always happened. When you show up, everyone's in friendship making mode, right? When you're in high school, by about grade 10, 11, 12, you have your friend group. Right. If you if you transfer to high school in grade 12, you're in trouble because all the friendship <laughs> groups are made. Right. At Ryerson, there are no friendship groups. Everyone's got an open hand. So you're waiting in the hallway for a, like an ID card, for the EDC or something. And I say, hey, I'm Gary. What you know, I'm Jaron. Nice to meet you. Miku, nice to meet you, Jacob. Right. And you get to know each other because nobody knows anybody. And then I say, you know what? I'm going to go get my student card. You want to go together? Have you got yours yet? No, let's go together. So then we go together. And now I have one friend or two friends or three friends. And maybe there's two of us that have a friend and we see someone else. Invite them into your circle. Because you know, you have no idea. First of all, it sounds very self-serving, but you have no idea where, the, where <laughs> just treat everybody right. Because some, some people are going to be heads of industries and they're going to be, you know, running Amazon one day. And they're going to remember that on the first day of RTA, you were kind enough to say, hey, let's go over together. Are you alone? Let, come with us. So if you see someone alone, introduce yourself or bring them along, get to know people. And I think you'll, the three of you will agree the best part about RTA is, is the people you get to go to school with. Hundred yeah, percent. It really yeah. is because insane. like like okay, so I've I've taught you I've had the privilege of teaching you. So we spend a few hours together in class, but you guys get to work on projects together, you get to do films together, you get to go have lunch. You know, when I was working in when I was in RTA, we had like um, we were shooting it was quite late. We were staying at people's houses overnight, you know, and you really bond with people. And this is a great place to bond with people, be nice to everybody. And um, I think if everybody has that attitude, right? So let's say Miku, you, me, and Jacob are walking along and we see Jaron. Hey, why don't you come with us? We're going to get our pictures for student cards. Yeah, great. Or maybe Jaron says, you know what? I already sent mine in because I'm better than, I'm smarter because I couldn't <laughs> yeah. And by the way, you should send in your photo for the ID card. And then, but Jaron said, I'll come, I'll come anyways. I'll show you where it is. Or let's go, let's all go. Let's, then we'll go for a coffee, you know? And that's why if you have uh, some spending money, it's helpful. Like that sounds like you're, I'm a hundred years old. You're spending money, but uh, <laughs> no, but if let's say you, you, you have a part-time job and you've saved up your money and you say, well, you know, I have some money up for lunches out or, uh, or coffee with people. There's lots of great places downtown to have a, a drink and just, you know, get to know people. That's, that's, I think what I would tell people. And, but again, enjoy the journey and it's better with people. I think mm -hmm. climbing Mount mm -hmm. Everest alone is not fun <laughs> and take it from a guy who's <laughs> traveled a lot by myself. And going to a local museum in Toronto with people is way more fun than going to the Eiffel Tower alone, as fantastic as the Eiffel Tower is. It's just shared experiences, uh, to me, enrich the experience.
and and actually that's one of the great things with television is a lot of the travel I do I like I'll do video blogs from there and I still haven't published any of this but I feel like I have an audience there so I'm talking to somebody on the camera so in a sense I'm not alone but if you're just by yourself looking around at stuff sometimes it's fun to have say hey come and look at this look at this yeah look for people and and um, journey together with them <laughs> that's that's amazing thank you so much Gary again thank for you. doing all this and honestly you I'm sure if anyone's listening to this at all, I hope someone is like, I'm sure they, <laughs> they learned a lot as like, even this podcast, you know, even though we've talked so much, I'm learning so much and I'm, it's so sad that I probably won't have any more classes with you after this year, but. Well, just cause the classes stop doesn't mean the, the connection stops. And uh, I, I hope we move into a, a friendship mode and maybe one where if you need advice, I'm happy to do it. Miku, you mentioned something about uh, the budgeting or uh, trying to come up with some, how much do I charge? Mm-hmm. Uh, always happy to take phone calls or emails. And it's it's been a real privilege to speak with the three of you today. Awesome. Thank you so All much. Right. Is there anything you would like to plug, Gary, at the end of this podcast? Uh, nope, not a plugger. Uh, other than this podcast, everybody should be listening to this fantastic podcast. Uh, I appreciate being asked. And uh, thank you for asking my advice. And I guess the last thing I would say is just, Uh, I think there's wisdom in in the counsel of many. So um, don't just ask one person, ask a couple people and then, you know, base your decision on that. And some decisions will be wrong ones. You'll go, boy, that was a mistake. Happens all the time when you're driving. Oh, I shouldn't have gone on the highway. But it's okay to to make mistakes along the way. Just, okay, get off of the next exit and repurpose, you know, maybe take an internship or like Jacob with you and UFT, right? You did six weeks. This is not for me. I'm leaving. And there's, there's no shame in that. To me, that's not a failure. It's success in realizing it's one step closer to knowing what you want. And one of the things, uh, and this I will end with, um, I love buffets. And I hope that post-COVID buffets return. But I love buffets because I can try a little bit of everything. And you can say, oh, okay, I want more of that. And to me, RTA is a buffet. When you come in, you can try a little bit of everything. When I was in RTA, tried a little bit of everything, did audio, did went overseas and did some radio for two months, tried that, you know, and see if you like it. Uh, because sometimes people come to RTA thinking they want one thing, find something they like better. And the next thing they're designing video games because that's their real love. And they didn't know it was even a thing. And your thing is your thing. And don't be afraid of other success. Like if, if the three of you go on to great success and I'm still a barista at Starbucks, and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't let social media get you down. Don't look at other people's lives and say, oh, they've got it so great. You know, Jacob was jet boating in Niagara Falls last week. I don't wish I had that. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't. It's not helpful. Rejoice in his success. And then maybe say, hey, how do I get that? Success is something that's individual, not that I have a Mercedes in the driveway. That's that's just a thing. Anyways, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to future episodes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Gary.